Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple that you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Well, get ready for an inspiring conversation with my guest today, Lonnie Ali. She's the wife of legendary boxer Muhammad Ali and a powerful leader in her own right. She incorporated, built, and sold Greatest of All Time, Inc., and also founded the Muhammad Ali Center, which is a nonprofit museum and cultural center right here in my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky, and it's devoted to inspiring the world through Muhammad Ali's legacy. Now, Lonnie is an extraordinary leader with a big heart and a clear moral compass, and it's easy to see why she and the GOAT had such a great partnership. And boy, if you need a jolt of inspiration in your life, this is a conversation for you. It's going to remind you that the best things in life and business often happen when we give without expecting anything in return. Plus, Lonnie shares some beautiful stories of Muhammad Ali, including the backstory of when he lit the Olympic torch at the 1996 Games in Atlanta, which my wife Wendy and I had the opportunity and honor of seeing. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Lonnie Ali. Lonnie, thanks so much for having this conversation with me today. Well, thank you, David. It's a joy to see you. You know, Lonnie, I always like to start out at the beginning. You know, tell us about your upbringing. Well, I was raised here in Louisville, Kentucky, um, born here, raised here, went to school here. Um, went to Catholic. I was raised Catholic, went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, and stayed here until I went to college. Um, Louisville made a big impression on me. I lived in the suburbs. I originally was, when I was born, lived in the city till I was about five. And then mm. I moved in the suburbs and moved into a neighborhood that um, was uh, young professionals with children and uh coincidentally, lived across the street from Muhammad's parents, which was Cassius Clay at the time, Cassius mm. Clay's parents. And um, so I had a very colorful upbringing. I bet you did. I bet you did. Yeah. Do you have a story from your early days that really kind of affected your leadership and your perspective on life? You know, what's interesting, David, is I've never really thought of myself as a leader. I have always been taught by my parents to do what needed to be done. Uh, to sort of figure that out and to do it to, your, to the best of your ability. But um, I had lots of mentors, you know, growing up with my parents, Muhammad, my teachers. But um, they, I think, saw leadership abilities in me, but I never considered myself a leader per se. I just tried to do the right thing every day. But of course, my parents taught me a lot. You know, they taught me you know, your word is your bond. They taught me whatever you do, do it right the first time because it's going to take more time to go back and do it again. That's so true. Um, to not, uh, to be open and kind, be compassionate to people, not to judge harshly. Yeah. yeah. Um, they, they were big um, supporters of education. Mm. Uh, they believed education was key to everything. Um and to aspire to be something, yeah. you know, try to be something in life to give back, to be a contributor to, to society, not someone who took. 
What did you want to be when you grew up when you were a kid? Did you have any idea of what you wanted to do? You know what? I always wanted to be a physician. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I think because of helping people. My father had polio. Mm -hmm. And I grew up, you know, helping him, and which was interesting because I, I was like his little, his little imp in a way. I was always around him, doing things for him, taking care of things. You know, he was a great cook, so he'd cook, I'd do the dishes. You know, I'd clean up. Um, but I always wanted to be a physician. And then when I got to college, I realized I didn't want to be a physician. After I saw. I went to my first cadaver dissection. <laughs> I decided to just sort of throw myself into that my freshman year of college, just uh -huh. to see, because I went to Vandy. Yeah. So I went over to the Vanderbilt Hospital, you know, and they let me go in that cadaver lab. Yeah. No, I figured this was not for Lonnie. Yeah. <laughs> Vanderbilt's just a great school. And by the way, my daughter went to Vanderbilt. Oh, great. You know, yeah. yeah. So why did you pick Vanderbilt? Well, I actually wanted to go to school in New York, mm -hmm. but my father wouldn't allow that. It was mm -hmm. too far away. And I didn't want to go to school here in Louisville or Kentucky. I wanted to get away and experience some things. So I my sister was at Nashville and in Nashville, and my brother-in-law taught at Vandy. So I applied there, and um, as well as some other places. But I got in there. So I thought, this is great. This is where it was only three hours. And at that time, we had a train that actually went there. But so we don't right. have that anymore. Right. No. But uh, in fact, that disappeared after my freshman year. But it was, a, it was a very good experience for me. Yeah. Tell us about your, your first job out of college. What, what was it like and what did you learn? Well, my first job was with the state, actually. I was a state employment counselor for the state of Kentucky. So it was interesting because it sort of put me on the other side of things where I was looking at, at uh, applicants trying to prepare them to interview for possible job openings. Mm -hmm. So it sort of taught me what an employer would look at. Um, it put me in that other seat. And I mean, it's, and it went down as far as body language, how you dressed, eye contact, how, you know, shaking someone's hand when you come in, being direct, um, being honest, really giving people an opportunity to see who you are and what you can bring yeah. to the table. Yeah. So I did that for a year. It was a, it was a great opportunity. But when I got out of school, I have to tell you, I really wanted to, I went, I majored in psychology. So then I was going to become a child psychologist. Mm -hmm. So I applied to school, but it's really difficult in getting into a program like that. And I didn't know if I'd get in. And that's why I took this job in the interim. And then as an employment counselor, I came across openings as well. So I decided to apply to Kraft Foods and I got the job the same day that I was accepted to the University of Illinois at, uh, at Chicago, Urbana to, um, I mean, Chicago Circle, to go to graduate school. Wow. So what made you at that point in time say, I want, really want to go for this craft opportunity? And what because, was that opportunity? Well, well, it was sales. It was yeah. basic entry-level sales. And I and I, in school, it was really interesting because I really didn't like business. I was one of these, you know, I was raised Catholic. I was a God save the world person. Yeah. Um, I really didn't like like business at first. And then I decided, you know what, Lonnie, you got to think long term here. How are you going to feel if you get someone who comes into your office with a child that has been hurt or abused? How are you going to process that? You know, and I, I know me. I would take it home. I'd be in anguish. I'd 
probably drive myself crazy, you know, worrying about things. So I said, you know what, this might be a better opportunity for you to try this business um, um, opportunity with craft as opposed to going to graduate school, because maybe you can do that later, but check this out. So I did. Plus, you know, given the financial burden as well. So I did. I, I, I went and interviewed with Kraft and got the position. What did you learn selling that you've been able to carry over into the rest of your career? You have to listen to your customer. You really do. And you have to love what you do. You have to love what you're selling. And if you don't, I suggest you go get another job. <laughs> it's true. Because <laughs> if, if you cannot sell what you, I mean, if you cannot believe in what you're selling, you're not going to yeah. be able to sell it. Yeah. You know, you said your parents were really passionate about you getting educated properly. Right. Went to Vanderbilt. And then, you know, after working at Kraft, you decided to go get your MBA at UCLA. Right. Uh, and I think it was in 1986. You know, why did you decide to get your MBA? Well, working with Kraft opened my eyes to the world of business because it's not a place I had been before and the opportunities that existed. And I was always one to believe that you should get, you know, really fill up that, that uh, cachet of skills. And I, know to get, I knew to get anywhere in business that you would need an MBA. I mean, what better way to learn? In fact, because I did not have business uh, uh, courses in my background, I went out to L and got, you know, these preliminary courses, post-grad courses, so that I could apply. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I went and pursued the MBA. Now, eight, 1986, you got your MBA, but it also was the year that you married Muhammad, Muhammad Ali. That's right. Which is, uh, that, that was MBA. a big year for you. No question about that. Yeah. You know, when did you first meet uh, Muhammad? You mentioned you're in yeah. Louisville, but how old were you and how old was he? I was six. And he had come home to... Um, visit his parents, and I remember walking in the house and seeing Muhammad, well, actually seeing my mother looking out the front door across the street at someone sitting on a porch, and um, it was Muhammad, and I didn't know who he was. And my mother said, look, there's Cassius Clay. I didn't know who Cassius Clay was, and he happened to see me in the door, you know, standing there, through the window and sent my brother over to get me because every little boy in the in the neighborhood was there in front of him. And I, I mean every <laughs> little boy, big boy, teenager, every boy in that neighborhood was standing yeah. in front of Muhammad. Yeah. And he was just sitting there holding court. Yeah. Now I, I read that when you met him then, you knew that someday you would be married to him. Not then. Not then. Not then. Okay. It's when I was 17, I knew. 17. And it was just, and he wasn't even in town. It was just, but every time he came in town, he'd be in my parents' house like he was in his parents' house, you know. Muhammad was everybody's son, everybody's nephew, everybody's brother. He was just like that. And um, at 17, I knew that, one day I would be married to him. Yeah. And how did you reconnect with him? It would, there was no reconnection because every time he came in town, I'd see him. You know, <laughs> yeah. if he had, he always, Muhammad always made time to support the local community. You know, they'd ask him to come back and come to these little fundraisers, the churches. Now, remember, he was supposed to be Muslim, right? But he'd be going to these Christian fundraisers for, for Christian churches in the West End or whatever for scholarships to go to to cosmetology school or to go to L. He'd always come back and do things for the community. Mm. And so some of them I would go to him with to, you know, for the evening or whatever. And just to see, he'd take me with him because he thought it was important that he educate me on, you know, world and whatever. So um, 
you know, I got to know Muhammad pretty well. How, how much older was Muhammad than you? 14, 14 years. 14 years, uh -huh. 14 years. You know, obviously, you know, you had this gut instinct when you were 17 years old that this was going to be the guy for you. You know, are you a really instinctive person? That is, you know what, David, and I don't mean this to sound weird, but I've always believed, and it may come from my Catholic background, that God had me on a path. And this is the, this is the truth. Yeah. I was on a path, and he had it all mapped out of where I was supposed to be and what I was supposed to do, and all I had to do was follow it. In my you know in my head, I knew that's that was you know all I had to do, yeah. and that has been true all of my life until the day I married him. Yeah. And it was like he said, "Okay, you've graduated. You're on your own. You need to make your own. You need to figure this out on your own now." Mm -hmm. But up until then, it was like. It was all laid out for me. Yeah. Now you were armed, you get married, you're armed with this MBA. And I, as I understand it, you know, after you got married, uh, you actually took over Muhammad Ali's uh, uh, business affairs. I did. Now, what kind of shape were they in? Well, let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> let's just say you were needed. Let's just say it's a good thing I went to business school and got that MBA. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Well, you're, you know, you're a very creative entrepreneur. And, you know, you, you really, you know, you incorporated GOAT, the greatest of all time. Tell us about that story. How, how well, did that come to you? Well, actually, that name was, I didn't come up with that name. One of Muhammad's attorneys did, um, came up with that name, Ron Twill, greatest of all time, GOAT, which was interesting because it's also his zodiac sign. Because he's right? a Capricorn, and that's the Capricorn, yeah. Yeah, so it made sense. But anyway, um, yeah, I sort of just decided things needed to be organized and centralized and because things were everywhere. You know, people weren't getting, you know, replies. Things were falling through the cracks. And so I just decided, you know what, this needs to come home. This needs to be here with Muhammad, not somewhere else. Yeah. So that's what I did. Yeah. And it fortunately, it was a little difficult for him at first. But I think he realized that, you know, I had gotten the degree, I was educated, he knew I was solidly behind him, for him to trust me to be able to do this. Because, you know, he'd known me since I was six. It's like turning your life over to this little girl. I know mm -hmm. in his mind, I'm sure he thought, what does she know? She's green. She's never been out there. What yeah. is she? But he did. Yeah. And, you know, and thank God he did. Yeah. I mean, Muhammad was one of these great people who knew what he knew and knew what he didn't know. Yeah. So he let somebody do who did know, step yeah. in and help him. What did you do with the greatest of all time? Centralized and organized. I uh, brought in people to help. You know, one of the things I learned from the great Larry Townsend here in Louisville is surround yourself with people who know more than you do. Yeah. So I had a group of people that I would call on who were sort of like my, my uh, you know, my sounding boards, my consigliaries, my advisors who helped me build this company. I, I will not take credit and say I did yeah. this by myself. I didn't. And you ended up selling the company, right? We did. Yeah, yeah, for a pretty good price. We I did, recall. we did, you know? Yeah. And it, and let me tell you too, it wasn't all about the licensing either. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, there was a lot of things Muhammad couldn't do because he was not um, able to do physically due to his Parkinson's or his religion, you know, would prevent it. A lot of what that company sold for was the intrinsic value that Muhammad brought to the table, his reputation. You know, it was almost like um, um, a gold stamp on something. It was all the charitable work he had done, all the good work he had done out in the world yeah. sort of had 
had yeah. given this company even more value. Yeah. Well, you you found a way to monetize that and and also right. do good. You know, which is that's a, right. That's, that's the win win of all win wins. You know. Right. And him trusting in me to be able yeah. to do that. You know, Lonnie, you're you're obviously a very accomplished leader in your own right, even if you don't necessarily see yourself that way. But how did, how did you establish your own voice, separate of Muhammad, who who clearly had to be you know, one of the most charismatic persons to ever walk this earth? Interestingly enough, with Parkinson's, your voice, his voice in particular, became strained. And it was very difficult. It became difficult for him to talk and to project his voice. So I became his voice. I became the one who would speak for Muhammad on many occasions. And I don't know until now that I really had my, what I would say my own voice, because I always felt I was speaking for him. I think mm -hmm. it's just now in these present days that I feel like I am developing my own voice. Yeah, what, what is that? Do you, have you been able to think about what that really is? Well, you know, I, I spent over 30 years with Muhammad. So it really it's the continuation of his legacy. And because Muhammad understood the, the small stuff, the mm -hmm. simple stuff, you know, he said, don't sweat the, the, the small stuff. He didn't. And it was, it's, it's the simple message of loving, loving people the way you want to be loved and uh, finding that thread of humanity. So I think that, you know, and I believe that. I can sell that because I believe that. <laughs> That's a product that you that can sell. I can sell you can that. sell a craft, you can sell that, right? I can sell that. If I can sell cheese, I can sell this. <laughs> you know, in addition to, to, to handling the, the daily business, uh, you also traveled with Muhammad yes. on, on business and humanitarian, uh, humanitarian initiatives. Tell us a story about a trip that you, you two took that, that had an everlasting impact on your life. Well, you know, I, like I told you, I was raised knowing Muhammad ever since I was six. I knew he was a celebrity. I knew he was, you know, big time that people, you know, really idolized him. He was a great athlete and all these things. And I'd seen people reacted to, to Muhammad in, here in Louisville, you know, and sometimes in the streets of New York and places. But I'd never seen people react to Muhammad overseas. I mean, I knew he was a big deal, but, you know, I grew up with him. And we went to Pakistan for something. I can't even remember what it was for. And Muhammad didn't travel with bodyguards once he retired. Mm. Muhammad was fine by himself. We never had bodyguards or anything like that. It was just us. We never had an entourage. And we went, we were in um, Lahore, Pakistan. And I will never forget these people, grown men, running after Muhammad throngs of them, not 10 or 15. I'm talking about 70, 80, 90, 100 men, like running after him like he was, almost like he was some prophet or something. I could not get over it. It was so astounding to, to, to be there visually and watching people the way they, they, you know, were attracted to him and they knew him and how they revered him. And it really made me think, you know, I knew Muhammad was special, but then I realized he's even more special than I realized. Mm. You know, um, this man is a gift. Yeah, absolutely. How many countries did you, you two oh, visit together, you think? I have no idea. I've never kept up with, I mean, I, there's a list somewhere. It's not that I kept <laughs> that list in my head, but at least, I would say at least 20, 25 countries that we went to together. You know, 
we did a study when I was at Yum Brands on on brand uh, people that were recognized in the world. Right. Muhammad Ali was by far and away number one. But do you know who number two was? Colonel Sanders. Colonel Sanders. <laughs> yes, KFC. I think Jonathan, your, our, our mutual friend Jonathan Blum shared that with me one time. Yeah, yes. <laughs> it's crazy. You know, yeah, you know, on a more serious note, you know, when did you first learn that Muhammad had Parkinson's disease? I knew it before I married him um, mm-hmm. that he did. I think even when I was at business school, I knew it. It had not been formally diagnosed, but I knew something was wrong with him. Um, and it became formally diagnosed maybe in 1984. Uh, but Muhammad, you know, Muhammad was mind over matter. He didn't see where it interfered with anything, so it didn't, mm. it didn't bother him. It bothered us more than it bothered him. And um, it was just something to be managed at that point, you know, like diabetes or not to say it wasn't serious. Of course it was serious. And there wasn't a lot known about it then. They knew what it was, but they didn't know what caused it and how to cure it. Yeah. And we sort of grew up with that research. But, yeah. um, you know, it presented challenges, yes, but it never was anything that we let define our lives or define him. Lonnie, I've, I've always admired you as, as a leader, but even more as a person. And one of the things that you know, I, I watched and, and I saw firsthand is you, you are absolutely an amazing caregiver. And, oh, yes. And what, what advice could you give people who, who end up in a, a caregiving role? I think I was trained for it because, like I said, I worked with my dad who was um, had, had polio. So I was always there caring. And it was just the way my parents raised me, I think, to care for other people. But it's not a role that we you know, go aspire to do. Mm-hmm. It's something we find ourselves having to do. And um, it's a very uh, rewarding position, I think, uh, because it gave me an opportunity to spend more time with Muhammad and to enhance his life, the latter part of his years, to make sure he had quality of, of life. But I think it's important that caregivers keep perspective and not let it overwhelm them because it can and to really take care of themselves because I used to give these these little talks to caregivers about you know caregiving and how to take care of yourself and to do this and to do that and and I really thought I was doing that I really did and um and I found out since I wasn't I was doing it but not really I wasn't doing such a good job So you really do have to make sure that you take care of yourself and that you allow time for you because every day is a new normal uh, when you're caregiving and you have to learn to adapt. As Muhammad say, roll with the punches and make every day count. Give every, give quality of life to that person you're caring for every day if you can and to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's sort of the magic of the end to the person and to yourself that because is you correct. can get out of balance there. Absolutely. Yeah, Very yeah. quickly. You know, one of the most emotional scenes that I've ever witnessed, and, and thank God I was able to, to witness this with my, my, my wife, Wendy and daughter, Ashley was, we were at the opening ceremony at, at the Olympics in Atlanta, uh, where Muhammad lit the, the torch for the whole world to see. Can you tell us an inside story on what that was like for the two of you? 
Well, that was quite an amazing story. I mean, it was Dick Ebersol at NBC who decided that, you know, Muhammad would be the perfect person to light the cauldron in the 1996 Olympics. And I think Dick contacted us maybe six months ahead of time and asked Muhammad, would he do it? And of course it was an honor, of course he'd do yeah. it. But then when they went down, and, but it was one of these things you couldn't tell anybody. I mean, the kids didn't know. The only people who actually knew were me and Muhammad, Howard Bingham, who was also a friend of Dick's, Dick, and I think Billy Payne, who was the head of the Atlantic mm -hmm. Olympics. And they had to go down and do a, a test, a run through before the Olympics. And that's when they, Muhammad found out that it was really high up. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And it was, you know, he had to climb all these steps and be up there on this big, tall scaffolding and all this stuff. But it went fine. We never said a word. You just sort of forgot about it till it happened. Yeah. But it was such an amazing moment. I was in the production booth when he was lighting that cauldron. And to hear that swell when he walked out in that yeah. stadium of people gasp and people were crying. And I yeah. mean, it was audible. And yeah. it was like, oh, my gosh. You know, it was, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. I almost started crying, right. you know, just yeah. listening to you talk about it. It was you know really what? emotional. Bob Costas was doing the, 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 the commentary then. And, and I think Bob started crying. And yeah. I remember President Clinton was there and he, I think he started crying. Yeah. It was because, and I think it's because people were really excited to see him up there to overcome that Parkinson's and still be there. And actually he was, he had a tremor. So it was on display for all the world to see, but to have the courage to be there. And it sort of reminded them of everything he represented, I think. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was amazing. And speaking of everything that he represented, you you co-founded and created the, the Muhammad Ali Center here, which is another startup of yours, you know, in, in many respects. What was Muhammad's and your vision for, for this wonderful center? It was to continue the legacy. And part of it was because of everything we saw going on in the world in the 80s. And when we traveled and then in the early 90s, because, well, actually in the 70s, um, Muhammad was doing some traveling. And I remember some of the stories he would relate to me. But in the 80s and the 90s, um, just hearing, um, you know, the conflict that was going on in the world in the Middle East. At that time, it was going on in, in um, Yugoslavia with Croatia and um, Bosnia. One of Muhammad's doctors was uh, Serbian. Um, so, you know, we were paying attention to that. It just seemed to be chaos everywhere. And then to see kids, when you go to some of these countries mm -hmm. of despair, we went to the Sudan where they didn't have water. I mean, it was, it was just amazing how kids just did not have a future. They didn't, they didn't dream of a future. They didn't see themselves being growing old, you know, having grandchildren and, you know, living a full life. And it, it was something that Muhammad and I felt we wanted to change. We wanted to give people hope and you know, to carry on that legacy of, of loving people and helping people and finding greatness within, you know, lifting yourself up. So that's how it got started. Yeah, that's, you know, tell us about the, the single biggest hurdle you had to overcome to, to get the center up and running. Oh, my. The single bit, well, with any, any organization, it's fundraising. So you had to put those sales shoes on again, huh? Well, not only that, it was, you know, because Muhammad couldn't do it himself. You know, mm -hmm. usually if, you know, like Michael J. Fox, thank God, when he was putting together the Michael J. Fox Foundation, picked up the phone and called people. 
because Parkinson's affected Michael differently. His voice was still fine. Muhammad couldn't do that. And it was never like Muhammad to do that anyway, because Muhammad never really asked anybody for anything. So what was funny is that people, when they were here, and I had a wonderful group of people, um, it was Governor Brown and Larry Townsend and Ina Brown Bond and, you know, um, a lot of the people from the, from the city, actually some of the, the children from the Louisville sponsoring group, uh, Eleanor Bingham, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's really interesting. But they said, Lonnie, give us your Rolodex. And I said, my Rolodex? They said, yeah, Muhammad's Rolodex. It's all his conduct. I said, Muhammad didn't have a Rolodex like that. They go, what do you mean? I said, Muhammad never collected people's business cards because he never wanted anything from them. He never was going to call them back and say, can you do this for me? He never did that. He didn't have a Rolodex. They were just floored. They couldn't believe it. But that's just the way he always lived his life. So that was a challenge, mm-hmm. raising money to um, build this center. And I have to tell you, once again, that was not Lonnie doing all of that. That was through the generosity and the determination of a lot of people here in Louisville who believed in the vision and the legacy. Now, how are you, Lonnie, you know, how how are you keeping Muhammad's legacy, you know, uh, alive without his his, his presence? A lot. That's what we knew this center would would do. And that's why we wanted to put it here prior to Muhammad leaving this earth, because we, we really wanted his handprint on the center. And that is, that is, this is the physical sort of manifestation of that legacy, but there's also the one that we carry forward throughout the world with our programs. I'm getting ready to start a podcast with a friend to do that. Um, because even though we know things, we have to be reminded. And I think in the world that we live in today, the message Muhammad Ali brought to the world of connecting with humanity one person at a time still is powerful. Yeah. Tell can you give people just a quick snapshot of what you would see if you, you you came to the center? Oh gosh, you know we've won several awards here. Um, first of all, you're going to get the truth. We did not. Want, I mean, putting the center together. If you can think of a tapestry, a mosaic with all colors of the universe in there, and trying to pick out the most important ones, that's how difficult it was to do this because Muhammad's life is so complex, it's so layered. So we tried to pick out the most important things we felt would would resonate with people and and provide a message. So you're gonna get a true story of his childhood. It sort of goes, starts from his childhood, from the time when he lost his bicycle, or I shouldn't say it was lost, it was stolen, um, growing up in the West End, and then how it projected him to, to Joe Martin, who brought him into the gym and, and how he trained. And, it's, and that whole idea of training is a program all in itself of dedication and, and um, believing in oneself and, and um, perseverance, pushing through, even when times were hard or people didn't believe in you. Um, and it goes through his life. I mean, of, of achieving the Golden Gloves, the Olympics, being thrown onto the world stage, uh, the Vietnam War, his resistance to the Vietnam War of being drafted. It goes through, you know, his struggle in his religion of first becoming, um, he was born Christian, he was a Baptist, he was raised Baptist here in Louisville by his mom and then converting to, um, they call it black Muslims, but it was, I don't know, um, Elijah Muhammad's group. And then going from there into true Islam, Al-Islam, 
think of that whole progression and how that changed. And all of this against the backdrop of the 60s, of mm -hmm. civil rights movement, Vietnam. Um, and Muhammad wasn't a perfect character. Right. You know, he, he evolved. You know, he, at the core, he was always who he was and he always remained that person. He was always a loving, kind individual. But, you know, Muhammad evolved. He began to see, as we do, we get older, wiser, and he understood things that he probably didn't understand when he was younger that gave him a better view of the world. Yeah. I knew that was going to happen. Well, Lonnie, I have to tell you, this place is amazing, and I highly recommend everybody, you know, anybody has a chance to come here to, to, to see the, the, his life and all the learnings that go along with it. You know, it, conflict resolution, you know, it, that's, it's, it's really tough for leaders. I think it's one of the hardest things people have to do as leaders is to handle conflict. And tell us about the work you're doing in this area at the, at the center, and, and what advice can you offer up? Well, actually, David, right now we're not doing as much conflict resolution. They're more focused on education, um, gender equality, and global citizenship. We have not been able to get to that point of where we do conflict resolution yet because of the resources that are involved, getting the expertise in, and trying to really go deep on these other three first before we move over to that. But I think it's, it's something Muhammad and I, because as I said, we we're seeing conflict in the world. It was one of the reasons why we decided we wanted to do this because the one thing everybody could agree on was Muhammad. I mean, we'd hear stories all the time and people would tell us of how they grew up in Northern Ireland. And, you know, when Muhammad was boxing, everybody stopped fighting, went into the pubs, drank and watched Muhammad fight together, <laughs> you know? And people, I mean, when Muhammad would go to the Middle East, if he was in Israel, he'd be heralded down the streets of Israel as he was in the West Bank in Palestine. Yeah. This man could go anywhere and be be like that. I mean, both sides. He always brought people together. He's the one person people could always agree on. And why is that? It's because of the way he treated people. He, you know, he, the way he approached people. He was always open and kind and loving. And um, we figured that if there was anybody who could present a neutral ground for people to meet to 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 uh, resolve their differences, it was Muhammad. And we figured this would be the perfect place to do it. Because when you came in here and sat at the table, you came with equal standing. Yeah. And everybody hopefully would leave with a win in their pocket. You know. Well, obviously, Muhammad clearly had the, the, the courage to take a stand. And you, you mentioned the things from the Vietnam War to changing his name to embracing a new religion. You know, these were all controversial, particularly back in, in, right. in those days. Very. You know, he seemed so confident. Uh, you know, at least on on the outside. But did, did he have any struggles internally with these things, or is it just the no? Muhammad, I believe Muhammad was divinely inspired. Muhammad was extremely confident, and when you think about where he came from, from the West End of Louisville, and times when this was a segregated Louisville with a mother who did you know clean people's houses, his father was a sign painter. What aspirations could he really, you know, dream of? And he really had this belief in self. And, and as soon as he walked into that gym, which really, uh, with Joe Martin, which really was just to learn how to fight to beat up whoever took his bike. That was the initial reason why he went in there. Joe Martin got him in there. But once he, he got hooked on that, he wanted immediately to be the best, you know, that he could be, to be the heavyweight champion. 
And Muhammad had always demonstrated that confidence in himself. He always believed that he was the best and he, he could be the best. But he knew that did not come, you know, by just sitting around. He knew he had to put the work in to make that happen. And he did. Nobody, you know, if you, poor Angelo, he's not, he's not with us anymore. But Angelo would tell us how he never really had to train Muhammad, you know, after he got him started. Muhammad would be at the gym before he was. You know, Muhammad would run the distance to get there. Uh, you know, he, he, he'd be the last to leave. So he knew he had to work hard to get there. and He did not mind doing it, but he knew he was going to be the best. Mm. And he had that real belief in self that he could do it. Yeah. But he always said he did it with God's help. He would always tell you that. Yeah, well, that's great. You know, what, what do you think about athletes and using their stature today to, to take very public and political stances? I think What's it's important. I think it's very important that they do that. Not that we always have to agree, but I think it's important because they have the platform. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, and sometimes they're the ones who can make the change. They can, their voices can be heard, whereas the person who's standing watching them, their voices may not be heard. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important that athletes take stands for social change, for social good, social reform, what, you know, as long as it benefits the whole. Mm -hmm. You know, not for selfish reasons, but for something that benefits the whole. You know, you and Mohammed uh, perhaps raised more money for American charities than than any other couple. Uh, you know, I, 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 won't, I, I don't I won't. You know, it's it's say it's, that. It, but I, I've read this in many places that there's very few people have done as much for charity in our country than you as a couple. So hats off to you. What drives your your, your personal passion for philanthropy? I think just trying to give people a lift, just trying to give them hope, to inspire them to just try to hang on one more day, you know, to see that people care about them, uh, that there is a better tomorrow, there's a better future, and the sun will come up tomorrow. You just have to believe that it will and fight as hard as you can. But, you know, much, as they say, to those that much is given, much is expected, and I think it's our duty to do that. It's our duty to be out there helping people, especially if we had the platform and the, the means and the resources to do it. I couldn't imagine sitting in a, in a city that really had people who were afflicted, who needed help, and Muhammad and I had the means to do so and did nothing. Mm. I mean, what meaning is there of life? And you know how I know we did the right thing well, Muhammad trained me. I should say the reason I know he did the right thing, carried me along with him, was his funeral, his mm -hmm. memorial service. I don't know if you were here then, but yeah. it, I mean, just the people who came, who never met him, who came to pay their respects and to be there. That 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 was it. That that said it all. You yeah. know. Yeah. That that was an amazing amazing time and an amazing oh, it, it was. thing to watch. It, just to see people from all around the world, dignitaries, people from so many different vocations, you know, this, you know, what, what really struck you the most about that whole thing? That Muhammad was right. He said they'd come. <laughs> I swear. Muhammad said they'd come. And that's why he wanted it in an arena. And, yeah. I, and I just said, you know, and I've said this story before. I said, Muhammad, nobody has a 
funeral or memorial service in an arena. He goes, mm. but all my fans will come. <laughs> and he was right. He knew they would come, but but it, it just goes to show you that what he did every day of his life mattered. It mattered to a lot of people. And even whether or not they met him, you know, his example mattered. Yeah. So, I, you know, that's important, I think, for all leaders to know. Yeah. yeah. What you do really does matter. Right. Your you example know? matters. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Tell us about the, the origin of this event, Muhammad Ali uh, Humanitarian Awards uh, event here in, in Louisville and how important it is to you. It's always been our hope and desire to pass that torch of Muhammad's off to the other, to the next generation, and um, to, so that they can carry that torch forward. And this is really uh, a culmination of that idea and, the, and that thought of uh, celebrating and highlighting people around the world, millennials, people under the age of 30, who do this, who do this where they are, who make changes in people's lives and impact in societies and communities that are far beyond what you would believe. I mean, some of the things these people have done are just totally amazing. Tell us your favorite story. Um, well, there was this one young man, Kennedy Odeidi from Kenya, who was an awardee a few years ago. And he came from abject poverty. I mean, probably something we have never ever experienced or seen here and pulled himself up and he just had this stuff in him of wanting to help other people and make things better and to build schools and he was able to do and overcame all kinds of odds to do this mm. all kinds of obstacles to get himself through even the threat of death of of hiding and so that he would not be found because he would have been murdered um and, and living in places that we would not live. I mean, dealing with circumstances and environments that we would, you know, shrink from. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do it. And to have the courage to do this, just so, not for himself, mm. but so that he could uplift those people in his village mm. who lived in his community. And, it, it, you know, it, it just, I, when I see this and I, and I think those are the people that are the heroes they're the heroes, our everyday heroes, not people like me. Yeah. Because I stand up here and I can, you know, it's easy to pass, you know, uh, uh, advice or give a check. But these are the people who are on the ground actually doing it. And that's the hardest part. Mm -hmm. Who actually throw themselves into the middle of it. Who see a human condition that they think that they can alter or, or make better and do it. I mean, I mean, they just do it. They transplant themselves from like, Amer I love America, let me tell you that. I love America because I've traveled. You know, every time I remember being gone so long, when I came back once, I kissed the ground. <laughs> this is the greatest country on earth, it really is. Because when you go out there and see where how other people live and the conditions they're under, you will really appreciate what you have here. And when people transplant from here and go to places like that, just to make a difference, who go to Haiti trying to, to make water and or get water uh, um, drinking water for people. Right. Things we take for granted. Right. You know, in Sudan, trying to dig a well. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. And I, I have so much respect for these people, and it gives me so much hope that these, that, you know, that we are going to be okay as, as, a, as a race of people, right. as, as the human race. Because these, these, these people really care 
And how they, important do you think it is, Lonnie, to, to really recognize people as a leader? It's mm -hmm. it's extremely important to celebrate them and to give them the support that you you know mm -hmm. that they deserve and need, mm -hmm. because otherwise they can't go forward. And I think it's it's extremely and to highlight them so other people are aware and see it. Because then people can say, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go out there and, and you know and say, oh, I'm gonna start an organization, do that. Because there's so many already out there. Yeah. You know, all you do is find one. Yeah. You know, uh, I I don't know if you remember this, but we had a big celebration for you and, and Muhammad at the at the Yum corporate headquarters. I and certainly I, do. I actually gave uh, Muhammad one of my uh, Yum teeth, you know, the Yum yep. Award, yep. and wrote on it. Yeah. And, but that, that picture with you guys is my it's my favorite picture. Aww. I have it, you know, I have it, and just 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 love it. But you know, recognition is such a powerful thing. Yes, and, it and is. And even a Muhammad Ali like getting the recognition, right? And he loved and it. And he had plenty of it, right? And he loved it. <laughs> he always loved it. You know, so you know, as 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 you uh, as you go forward in 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 your life now, uh, what do you see as your unfinished business? You know, I, I really believe the center and his legacy. Uh, you know. People think, you know, when you talk about finding your own voice, well, it may have a different pitch, a different tone, but the message is going to be the same because I think it's a it's a a message for the ages, mm -hmm. you know, and from you know our political climate here, our social climate here in America and across the world, the things I see, it's so important. We are only Muhammad used to say, this life is nothing but a mosquito's wing to eternity. And it's true. It's in the snap of a finger, this life is over, and the rest of it is eternity. So what are you gonna do in that snap of a finger? Are you gonna spend it being uh, arguing with people, um, being divisive, you know, being selfish? Are you gonna try to help people? Uplift everybody, uplift everybody around you if you can. Um, and, and that was Muhammad's message, to love people without expecting anything in return. That's why he didn't have a Rolodex. Yeah. He, didn't have, he didn't expect anything, he just wanted to, be open and to love you because you're God's creation, you're a human being, and I have an appreciation for you, regardless mm -hmm. of the baggage you may carry with you yeah. or on you. So I think that message is endless. It's ageless. Um, and I think it's worthy of, of me spending, you know, the time I have left here spreading. It certainly is. And, you know, do you have any special advice, Lonnie, for, for female uh, women of color who who want to take a leadership role. Is there any advice you could give to them? First, forget you're a female of color. And actually forget you're a female. I never thought about, oh, I'm a, I'm a female. There's things I can't do, or there's things that, um, because I'm, I'm black, I, I'm not supposed to be over there. I never, mm. I wasn't raised like that, mm -hmm. and I don't think like that. Yeah. Always expect to belong. Right. Think you belong. Expect that seat at the table to be yours with your name on it and put yourself there. But it comes with responsibility. It, don't be frivolous with it. Because I think it's important, even though we are women of color, that we become role models. Whether we like it or not, we become role models and we have to set the example. I couldn't agree with you more, you know, on, on your perspective, which is, which is tremendous. Can you leave us with like three bits of advice you, you'd give to all up and coming and aspiring leaders? I mean, you're a person who started out, you, you well-educated, you start out in counseling, you go to craft, you yeah. end up, you know, licensing GOAT, then creating the Muhammad Ali Center. And when you look back, you know, what would be the, the best three bits of advice you'd give to, to aspiring leaders? 
first, I think you gotta you have to have gratitude. You have to have gratitude for everything you've been given and everything you haven't been given. You have to be have, be grateful for the big, the small, um, and be thankful that you know you've been blessed. I think you have to lead with a moral compass. You have to get up every day thinking that you're going to do the right thing and be able to, to translate that to those who you are leading and to set that example. And I, and you know, I, I don't, I could go on, but I, I think the other thing is that you have to be inclusive. You have to gather people, you know, be a consensus builder, um, Bring people in. Don't think you're the one who knows everything because you're not. Because even as a leader, we continue to learn as we age, as we grow older, as we get more entrenched into our careers. You have to continue to learn new ideas. Things evolve. And uh, you have to bring people in to do that. Of all persuasions. You know, Lonnie, I've learned a lot just by having this podcast with you. And I not only learned a lot, I've been inspired. Oh, well, and, thank you. And I want to thank you so much for, for taking the time to share your story. And thank you so much for everything you're doing in the world today on your own and also for, for continuing Muhammad Ali's legacy. It's, it truly is inspiring. And you are an amazing person. Thank you. You are the As greatest. As are you. You know, you are the greatest. Okay? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, it's obvious that Lani Ali is one special person. She has so much compassion for the world, and she leads with a grace and generosity that's truly remarkable. You can see why she and Muhammad Ali were such great partners, and why she cares so deeply about inspiring others with his legacy. She has seen firsthand the kind of change and unity we can experience when we treat others with respect and give without expecting anything in return. I mean, don't you just love that story about Muhammad Ali having no Rolodex? It just wasn't his style to call someone up and ask for a favor. That's some powerful inspiration we can use to grow as leaders too. This week, as part of your weekly personal development plan, I want you to do two things. First, list a few things you're grateful for in your life and work. Then think about one simple way that you can really be generous this week. When we realize how much we have to be thankful for, it's even easier to share with others who really need it. The world needs leaders who can lift others up and give to them a hope for a better future. Look for ways you can be generous without expecting anything in return, and you'll be part of building the better world that Muhammad and Lonnie dreamed about together. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders give without expecting something in return. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.